Hello, and welcome to the Wind Power Podcast. I'm Ian Griggs, Deputy Editor of Wind Power Monthly. In this episode, I'm speaking to Anders Nielsen, who is Chief Technology Officer for the turbine manufacturing giant Vestas. We'll be discussing why the race to produce the latest turbines should move from a battle for the biggest to creating one which is the most optimal at scale, how to create value for everyone in the wind industry supply chain, and whether or not there's a level playing field across all markets. Welcome, Anders. How are you today? I'm great. Thanks for the invitation. Anders, perhaps you could start by giving our listeners a brief outline of what your job for Vestas involves. I'm CTO for Vestas. That means that I'm responsible for the product development of Vestas, but also for the technical sales support. That means that we have a global team of 3,500 engineers, wherever part of it sits out in the region supporting the sales organization with basically technical bid management and helping in the dialogue with the customers to really define the right solution for the customers. And the other part is I'm sitting with the product development, which is then a more centralized organization, sitting in basically three hubs in Aarhus in Denmark, in Porto in Portugal, and in Chennai in India, where we do the product development and really looking to the new functionalities and new features that's needed and trying to get uh, the best value to the customers. In a recent opinion article for Wind Power Monthly, you called for turbine manufacturers to pull together and work with each other more collaboratively in order to reach 2030 targets for offshore wind. What does that look like in practice? I think you probably need to break that a little bit more into details. First of all, I'm a true believer in competition. I don't see this as a collaborative way of working where we're offering the same things to the market. I'm a firm believer of innovations and different solutions and actually through competition, finding the best solution for the market. So what I'm talking about is not giving that up. I think there is a number of things where you can look into how do you actually create standards in the market when it comes to transport equipment, when it comes to other parts that is not really connected to a USP for either OEM, is more facilitating the industry to actually mature in a, in a better way. So it's more on that level. Of course, I do think that when we say pull together, it's also about how do we get the discipline into the OEMs also to act responsibly so we can build a sustainable industry. We talked about this race to the bottom a number of times where we're basically trying to push levelized cost of energy down, even perhaps misleading the customers to believe that electricity will be free. It won't. There is a limit to where we can push it. And we need also to, to make sure that we have a, a sustainable level of profit across the value chain for all actors, including our subsuppliers, us as OEMs, and the customers. Otherwise, by the end of the day, we will not be able to invest into future innovation and future solutions or scale the industry. There is just no money to go around. So pulling together is getting your act together is probably a better choice of words. I was just trying to tease out the strands of where there can be agreement between you as turbine manufacturers. If I take the offshore as one example, where we have been growing the size of the turbines pretty fast over the years, and what we've been very vocal about is if you continue that growth at the same speed, then basically the write-off of the investment you do will be massive. And that means that you also need to increase the prices on the current turbine because this estimated life length of that product will be much shorter than you actually do. Second part is, how do we get our suppliers to invest in something that takes massive capital expenditures for only a couple of years before you basically say, no, now we have a new product, now we move on. What also talks to this is that 
we do see that the LCOE benefits of growing in size is not coming as before. We come to the point where I also need somewhere to say, okay, we need to slow this one down and we need to be able to scale instead. If the wind market is going to move from 5 gigawatts a year to 50 gigawatts a year in the next 10 years, then something has to be done differently. It will not tenfold without that we're actually acting differently and building capacity in the industry differently. And what's the price of failure in this as far as you're concerned? Then we won't be able to see the green transition happen as we hope for. There will not be enough capacity to supply the projects in the market. There will be some projects perhaps looking better, but there will not be capacity to supply all the projects in the market. But if you every second, third year will disrupt your supply chain by a new size, new vessels for, for installing the turbines to get that capacity up and running to the number of projects you see in front of us takes a lot of investments from those suppliers. You can't have it for two years and then basically say, no, no, it's too small, right? Your supply chain is not going to be happy. So you need a sustainable path and understanding how does this market look like and what, what volumes can I see in front of me and how do we stabilize that situation? We're a big part of this industry and that, therefore we are vocal about how we see how this has to mature and how we have to, what we are pulling to get it more mature. So, so I'm not pointing at all the others. I'm po- we point to ourselves and saying this is how we see it. So actually that collaboration is more down the supply chain where you're basically saying to your suppliers, okay, if you build us this vessel, which we can use to install the next turbine, we promise that we'll still require this vessel's services in a few years' time, in five years' time, maybe even in 10 years' time. So they've got that kind of forward look of investment. Yeah, we have to give them a certain life length expectations of their investments. If we can't give them any future looking perspective beyond two years, then it will be very hard for them to invest. Is there a tension between working with your suppliers and making a viable profit for the business? From that perspective, we believe as well that our suppliers have to be innovative and they have to come up with good solutions for us. But of course, at the end of the day, it has to be enough value in the proposal we give to the market so it actually there is a profit to be distributed along the complete value chain. Now today, it's very unevenly distributed where that value ends up. If our customers want to have a sustainable OEM business or suppliers for their projects, we also need to make money to be able to reinvest into our business and make sure that we actually stay there. Can we explore that a little bit further? You said it's very uneven at the moment where profit ends up. Could you just kind of outline for us where you think most profit lands at the moment? The race to win the projects has gone so far. So we basically are ending up with prices that is so low that we can't get a decent margin on the OEM side. And you can see that in financial performance that's being publicized by, by all. Again, with the headwinds, with the volatility in the market, how we handle that uncertainty and how we get the acceptance from the customers that we, we cannot pick up the bill for increasing raw materials. We cannot pick up the bill for increasing transport costs. That has to be an understanding. How does that flow through the whole value chain, including to the customers and the cost of electricity in the market? There is money coming in for using electricity pretty much, but it's not coming to us. It's not really pouring through the chain, so that makes it a viable solution for everyone. Do customers need to shoulder some of that risk and responsibility that currently the turbine manufacturers are being hit with? Yes, uh, of course, we have those uh, dialogues with our customers. It can't be that the risk is not connected to the reward. It has to be a shared risk model across the project lifetime. 
the underlying thing of what you're saying here is that it's not a shared risk, that actually the turbine manufacturers in general, that they're shouldering more of the risk than the customers. Is that right? That's right. And, and I would also say it, it's coming from a period of very, very stable raw materials. Over 10 years, we've had very stable raw materials, very stable inflation, very low interest rates. So it hasn't really been an issue. But then suddenly in two years, through a pandemic, through a war, through geopolitical instability, that whole world changes. And that means that the risk has increased. And that risk, we need to find risk sharing models across the business. You said a couple of times that you think competition is healthier. What do you think competition can do? Yeah, it will drive efficiency. I hope I'm not stepping on anyone's toes, but I've never seen a monopoly leading to a high efficiency. So basically, when you're faced with competition, you need to work with your own processes. You need to make sure you have a good value proposition to the customers. And that's how you drive the whole business forward. Competitiveness drives productivity, and that's good. But it has to be in equal terms. You said in this comment piece that you wrote for us earlier in the year that rapid product introductions challenge the industry's ability to scale efficiently, optimize turbine performance, and establish sustainable and efficient supply chains. You're saying turbine manufacturers are going to slow down, and I can see the logical case for why you're saying that. Just taking it the other way for a moment, how big can and should turbines get in the future? Are we anywhere near the maximum? It's probably a question I get most often. How big? For onshore, we definitely come into a plateau where, where it's hard with the infrastructure, how big pieces of equipment can you move on road. Offshore is a bit different on a different level, but key sites, pre-assemblies, installation vessels, the cost of the whole scaling of the product, you will need more, more material to carry the loads in that structure. And that also means that in times of higher raw material costs, that break-even points will shift. And the second part is, so in theory, you, I mean, of course you can build a bigger wind turbine. The question is, can you do it so it makes sense for the customer to a cost that makes sense to us? And can we still scale the industry? Something has to give, right? You cannot do one-off project and you build this fantastic supersized wind turbine. Somewhere you need to also find a balance between how do I scale the industry and how do I actually increase the performance of the turbines. I'm not saying that innovation stops because we say that size of the turbines perhaps is not growing as fast as before. There's a number of things we can do still within an envelope of a current turbine to optimize it over time. To make it more efficient, to produce more energy from this. There's a number of things that we, we can continue evolving without necessarily growing the, only the size of the turbine. If you do something once, you find out how to do it. If you do it a number of times, you become good at doing it. That goes for quality, that goes for efficiency in the whole biochain from suppliers through manufacturing to the transport to, to construction. Uh, every time you disrupt that and come in with something completely different, you start that cycle over again. And you don't do that in a two-year cycle. So I follow the logic of the argument that you're making and that it's a, a balance of quite a few different factors. But I notice you've carefully avoided actually saying how big they could potentially go in theory. Are you willing to stick your neck out on that and say for an offshore turbine, will we see 25 megawatts, for instance, or is that insane as, uh, as a proposition in the first place? I don't know. Uh, and we will continue evolving technology. We'll see where it takes us. But it has to make sense for both us and the customers over time. But it's also this, this balancing act. So can we make them bigger? Yes. Does it make sense? 
it's a big difference of building one and then when you want to do something in scale, what makes sense at that point of time. So I think that there is a business understanding that needs to drive what is the right size of the turbine. I think currently it's 50 megawatts. That's currently the right size of the turbine. That's what we see we can do it and we can mature that into an efficient product over the coming years. What will be the next one? We will explore and see what we can do, but we don't see a rush jumping in that direction. We need to be able to scale now to serve the market. I think that's more what we put more in priority than trying to grow the products in size. A lot of customers are asking, couldn't we get a bigger turbine for this project? And then I basically have to answer them the same way. It's about serving one project, or serving a market. Yes, we could build bigger turbines for you for your project, but then we'd slow down our entire production chain and we wouldn't necessarily be able to serve the rest of our customers as well. We're going to move away from this topic slightly. The chief executive of Siemens Gamesa recently called for a quota system to be introduced, which guarantees a set proportion of EU-produced turbines to be installed across the EU in order to protect the industry from what he described as unfair Chinese competition. Do you think the EU needs to take a protectionist stance to ensure that it still has a manufacturing base for wind power in another 20 years from now? Now, as I said in the beginning, I'm I'm a firm believer in, in competition, but it has to be a fair competition, right? So that means that, as always, you need to make sure that we are not price dumping, that there is a not a state finance type of uh, competition. You need to make sure that framework for running competition is there. And that, I think, is an obligation for the uh, European politicians as well to make sure that that is a fair competition. Of course, we need to provide our part of it. We need to be competitive, but we cannot compete against someone that possibly has a backed steel supply from the state, then that just will put us out of competition. Do you think a level playing field exists at the moment between the EU and, for instance, China? I would say if you look in currently, it's almost impossible for us to pick up business in China. That is also not just because we are not competitive. It's also how the market is set up and how they actually do their choice or how they drive their business. And the corresponding parts are not here in Europe. I mean, Europe is a much more fragmented market than China is. So from a legislation, from a, a how, how we work, it's very different. I think that making sure that there is a fair competition, that I think is important. Yeah, and that's a politician's job. That's not for Vestas and Siemens Gamesa and uh, all the rest of you, right? No, I think that's, that really comes into politicians as well to make sure that if we want to have this green transition, then we need to make sure that there is a fair competition, level competition around the world so that the supply chain can actually scale over time. Otherwise, we'll come into this bottleneck where suddenly it's not competitive anymore in some parts of the world due to a non-fair competition, then that supply chain dies. Indeed. Are you concerned that without the necessary support, that supply chain could be lost in the EU altogether, along with all the benefits that come with having a regional supply chain here in Europe? Again, I see the bigger problem now on the demand side. Of course, this is a long-term issue when it comes to leveling playing field, make sure that we set it up in a way that we are not being just purely protectionists, but that we also have a fair understanding what, what is a level playing field. And it works both ways, that you have a fair competition in China as well. I do think that it needs to be a fair competition, but focus here now should be how do we get the demand side going in, in Europe? How do we make sure that that green transition is enabled by 
also the framework that politicians are sitting on today. What is your assessment of the current market environment for turbine firms at the moment in the light of economic headwinds, the war in Ukraine and how that affects the price of raw materials, the price of everything, inflation and these supply chain issues? What's your assessment of where turbine companies are? Now, again, as you mentioned, of course, all of this, the pandemic, the raw materials, the supply chain shortages, the war in Ukraine, all of that, of course, been a very volatile situation at this point of time. I still think that what we need to get the market going, get the demand side going. We have a lot of political ambitions, what we want to see in the next coming five to 10 years. That will not happen unless we actually get into and enable that market to get going. That means getting the permits up. I think we can work our supply chains. We can work the bottlenecks. We can make a lot of things happen. We are ready to supply the market, but the market has to be there. Of course, it's a different business environment. We can do business in this environment as well. And you've mentioned the perennial bugbear of the wind industry several times permitting. Are you encouraged at all by policy developments like, say, Repower EU, which in theory at least will create a speedier permitting process? Of course. I mean, the political momentum is there. That's encouraging. That's really encouraging. But that momentum has to turn into action. On the ground that we see that our customers actually get their permits going and we see a past deployment of a wind resource in the market. And that we don't see yet. Suddenly, wind has never been more needed than before. Right? With this whole energy crisis, actually, wind is one of the really good solutions to, that you have access to in all countries. It's just still is kind of a paradox when, when you see that the demand has never been bigger for getting it in. Still, we can't get the market going. Demand has never been bigger, and it seems to me turbine manufacturers have never been poorer. Does it frustrate you that an industry which has the potential to solve the energy crisis, slow down climate change, and create high-value green jobs for local economies is not more profitable than it is? Well, of course, it's frustrating. Again, it comes also from a, a transition from one period of time to another period of time when we move from very stable environment, low interest rates, low inflation, uh, stable geopolitical situation into something else, which is very much volatile. We need to be self-reflective and see what of this should we have seen. Pandemic coming is not that easy, right? You would have asked me in March 2020, how long will this pandemic be? I wouldn't have guessed for two years. Of course, there's very extreme events, a war in Europe that has not happened for a very long time. All of this was hard to foresee. Now, we took a hit on that and the industry took a hit on it. But I think it also is, it, it comes into the maturity of understanding. How do we get this right? And here we come into pricing discipline. How do we, what type of business do you take on? How do you move into this new world? Just this transition period is frustrating, especially since, uh, as you say, this is a, a solution that the world needs. I think I detected a hint of optimism there. Do you have cause for optimism about how the next few years will play out for the turbine manufacturers? I'd be very careful to give any, any forecasts on behalf of the industry, but I think the demand side we see there and the political momentum is there. If we can get the politicians moving that ahead, of course, there's, uh, there's cause for optimism in the market. The momentum has never been bigger. The need has never been bigger. So yes, from that perspective, I'm optimistic. Finally, I'd ask you a couple of questions about COP27, which is a huge meeting of world leaders and businesses trying to solve the crisis that we're in. 
how hopeful are you that world leaders can reach agreement on the necessity for a faster build out of renewable energy to replace fossil fuels? I guess it still remains to be seen. First of all, that we have these high level meetings, I think it's important. It's important to try to pull the world together in understanding how do we actually solve the climate crisis. Then again, we're still struggling to get Paris Agreement. We're still struggling to, to catch up what we already have decided. It's good that we continue building up the political momentum, but again, how do we translate it into a reality? How do we tra- translate it into action that we really see the world we get going? Small part of skepticism, how much will it move the needle? How much can we do? But again, if they don't meet, nothing will happen as well. There's a lot of talk from the developing nations about how the more developed nations should be effectively paying reparations to them to mitigate the effects of climate change. Do you think those reparations should be paid? And do you think also the reparations should maybe come in the form of helping developing nations to deploy renewable energy? Is there a need to support developing countries? Yes, I do think there is a need for doing that. The good thing with creating renewable energy is that create a, a actually long-term solution where they also create energy independence in those countries. So I, I'm moving along the, that path. I do see as a very good solution for them. Having a reliable energy in your country is the true source of actually bringing wealth to a country. Without energy, is really hard. I think I would refrain from commenting who should pay for what. As a political hot potato, I think we would call that one. Finally, Anders, if you had the platform to speak at COP27, what would your message to delegates from Vestas be? It would really be to go from ambition to action. I mean, the ambition has been there for a long time. The political momentum is there. Now we need to translate a political ambition into actions. How do we actually get it done? How do we start moving the needle? How do we get this off the ground from the conference table to actually wind turbines on the ground, uh, renewable energy supplying, creating energy independency in uh, big parts of the world. I think that call for action would be the thing I would emphasize. So stop talking about it and get on with it. Less diplomatically, I'm not known for diplomacy. (laughs) Anders Nielsen, thank you very much indeed for talking to us for the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the Wind Power Podcast. We'll be back soon with another episode to explore the issues which are driving the wind industry today. In the meantime, for the latest news, expert opinion and analysis, visit windpowermonthly.co.uk for daily updates.